David Spangler, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. David, you are a, uh, a spiritual teacher. Is that a fair description? Uh, you've uh, uh, been co-director of the Findhorn Foundation Community in Northern Scotland from 1970 to 1973. In 1974, you co-founded the Lorien Association, which is a nonprofit spiritual educational organization, and you continue to work with it today. And I met you uh, uh, and your wife, Julie, at your home uh, near Seattle, uh, seems to me about a month ago. Um, and I just had a tremendous sense of, of resonance with you. I had been, uh, for many years, uh, carrying around and from time to time reading your book of Reflections on the, on the Christ. And after I met you... Uh, uh, I began to read your work much more systematically. Um, you've written about a dozen books, and I have to say I've only read about five or six. Uh, but among the books I've read in your, in your long list of books, perhaps even more than a dozen, are Reflections on the Christ, Blessing the Art and Practice, Incarnational Spirituality, Subtle Worlds, Facing the Future. So uh, that's sort of the, the homework I've done um, in preparing for our conversation. What have I missed? <laughs> well, actually, you've done quite a bit, and uh, probably uh, um, Apprentice to Spirit should be in there. That would be... Um, I'm sorry, I should have said that first. Uh, Apprentice to Spirit is, 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 is the book I actually read just before I met you, so... Uh, yes, I've I've been immersed in that. Well, there you go. Then you've you've <laughs> you've done a pretty thorough job. Um, I suppose uh, I would add uh, the subtle subtle world to that. And let's see. I yes, I didn't do a good job here. I've read subtle worlds. <laughs> also, also you suggested, by the way. Um, uh, that I read uh, Eileen Caddy's Fright into Flight into Freedom and Beyond and R. Ogilvy Crumbie's Meeting Fairies um, and Peter Caddy's In Perfect Timing and Dorothy McLean uh, Memoirs of uh, an Ordinary Mystic. So, yes. And now um, Ogilvy Crumbie's um, diaries are now out too. They weren't at the time that you were here, I don't think but they've come out subsequently. And I will have a look at those. And they're just called the, the Occult Diaries of R. Ogilvy Crombie. And, and yes, all of those books, the reason I recommended them was um, that they give uh, a good insight into the early days of Findhorn and what went into its creation. Mm-hmm. And we had been talking about that when you were here. So. Mm-hmm. I should have also mentioned that I read The Laws of Manifestation. I'm not doing a very organized job, but anyway. Um, so I think the place I'd really like to start um, is uh, with your memoir, um, which is extraordinary and is recently out, Apprentice to Spirit, The Education of a Soul. Um, and 
So you were born in Columbus, Ohio in 1945. Uh, you're uh, a couple of years uh, younger than I am. Um, and uh, and uh, moved to California in 1949. And when you were about five years old, uh, you, uh, I think, were playing in your home and you looked around and, and saw uh, a figure that had come into the room. Can you describe that experience? Yes, I was, if I remember correctly, I was in the, in the kitchen mm-hmm. and, as you say, playing on the floor and I looked up and saw this man coming into the room uh, from the back door that led out onto a kind of into the porch in the backyard, and but I didn't see him come through the door. It was like he just was there in the room and was coming towards me, and there wasn't any feeling of alarm or fear. Um, uh, I felt quite uh, comfortable in his presence. Uh, he was wearing. Um, Interesting, uh, what I now would recognize as overalls, and um, he was a fairly portly fellow, and and he just stood there. He didn't say anything and stood there looking at me for a little bit and then faded away. And it was some years later when my mother was showing me an old scrapbook of photos of uh, my dad's family that I saw his picture, and it was my my grandfather, my father's dad. And uh, interestingly, he he did own a farm. They owned this farm near Columbus, but he was not a farmer. He was an engineer and an inventor and spent most of his later years working for the National Cash Register Company. But, um, but they had this one particular picture that had been taken of him in his overalls um, on the farm. Uh, and that was the way I'd, I'd seen him that day in, uh, in Palo Alto. Very interesting experience. So as you describe it, even as a very young child, you you've saw or sensed energy surrounding all kinds of things. Yes, that's correct. Even before that experience. Uh, and seeing something like Granddad was, was actually quite unusual most of the things I saw were not that well, um, how should I say, they, they didn't take on um, that distinctly a human appearance. Um, you came later to think of it as a, uh, this non-physical realm of these energies. Uh, you describe it as a second ecology of the earth. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I, um, I think of, uh, I've come... Because of these experiences, I've come to think of the Earth as, as a whole system and not, not as uh, ultimately divided into uh, physical and non-physical realms or the, or the material and the spiritual, but rather as a whole system which happens to have these two major aspects, one of which is material and physical and one of which is not, at least by our standards, but they interact and are um, profoundly interwoven and function all together as a, as a great 
planetary ecosystem. Um, but there are significant differences, and so I do think of the the environment of the physical world as one kind of ecology, and the environment of the non-physical world as a second kind of ecology or ecosystem. And when you describe the second ecology, uh, which you say has as many species as the physical world, uh, you write that many of them never interact with us, and many do in the form of those beings we call angels, nature spirits, and of course the souls of those who were once incarnated. Um, so, uh, So this second ecology is at least as complex as the uh, scientific, earthly ecology with which we're familiar. Yes, it is. You know, uh, Michael, um, my background, well, I think of it as my background, although it was, wasn't for a very long period of time, was in biology. And, and, of course, I grew up in a family that was scientifically oriented. Uh, and... As a con- and because I also grew up experiencing the non-physical realms as just a part of everyday life, um, I, I, never, I never came to think of them as something um, extraordinary, although that's not quite the word I want. Thinking, I don't think of them in religious terms. And I feel that I wanted to, in talking about them, to, to suggest some different ways of thinking about these realms and the beings who inhabit them. And that's why I began using biological metaphors, like ecology and life forms and organisms, even though all of those words have very specific meaning within the, the physical realm. Um, I think that the essence of those meanings in terms of uh, interrelations and environments and and living entities uh, applies to the non-physical realms as well. And I actually think we we may get further thinking of them in that way than if I think of them as um, religious or spiritual or mystical or transcendental domains that are so truly removed from the physical as to be practically um, untouchable. In 1952, at the age of seven, uh, you were in a car driving into Casablanca in Morocco with your father and mother. He was uh, serving in the counterintelligence service for the United States. And you had a rather unusual experience that marked your life. Yes, I did. That's correct. I was looking out the window, watching a group of Arab women wash their clothes in a what was effectively a drainage ditch along the side of the road. And I felt as if someone was pumping air into me. I felt like a balloon, and I was expanding and expanding, and And the next thing I knew, I was floating above the car, looking down from a height of, I don't know, 15 feet maybe. And I could see the women. I could see the the 
scenery around the car, the road, and so on. And, and I could see through the roof of the car to my dad and mom sitting in the front seat and, and my body, me, um, my physical self, sitting in the back seat, still looking out the window. And having oriented myself in that way, I suddenly began to, to travel. That's what it felt like. But it was a sense a bit like rising through um, layers of clouds, layers of white, white substance, white light, that varied in texture and, and in intensity. And at certain points, I seemed to pop out like you would come out of a cloud, cloud cover and, and look around, and I would, was aware that there were environments that I caught glimpses of, um, and finally came to this one place uh, where it was as if, um, as if memory returned to me, and I, I knew that this was where I had come from, and that the, the, I saw a group of presences there, and I realized that, that either they were all part of me, or, or I knew them, or it was a little, it's a little hard to exactly describe. But I saw, I remember thinking at the time, oh, uh, this must be what an amnesiac feels when he remembers who he is, because I knew in that moment who, who I was as a, as a soul, as a complete being, not just as David Spangler, but as an identity that had uh, lived in this, in this other realm and had been around for a very long time. And, and then the, the experience continued, and I moved through several other of these layers and ended up um, in this in this interesting golden place, not a not not a place in the sense of a building or landscape, but but it was as if I was floating out in out in space and looking at a spiral galaxy and and thinking. Um, oh, this entire universe is my home and is my, I'm one with it. And then the process reversed itself, and I was moving back, and I, I went through a series of uh, very rapid um, stages or encounters which left me um, hovering above the planet. And, and this was in 1952. Uh, and and I was looking down on the planet, and it looked exactly like the pictures we've seen subsequently once NASA started sharing their pictures with us. Uh, this blue um, blue space with white clouds, and and I'm looking at the planet, and I'm thinking it is the most joyous thing to be able to go there. I just felt such a wave of love and joy and ecstasy at being able to become part of this world. And, and, and someone said, um, you are David Spangler. And I, in the moment that that name, I heard that name, I could then see myself, and I went immediately in, back into my body. And, and I was looking out, still looking out the window, 
still looking at the women washing their clothes, there was a, a billboard above the road which showed a, a European woman um, smiling and advertising an orange soda. And, and we weren't very far along. I'd, um, I recognized that, that in physical time, uh, not much more than a minute had passed, although inwardly it felt like a great deal of time had gone by. And I, and I retained full memory of the experience. I knew, I knew, um, I had full awareness of this other level of consciousness, this larger self. But at the same time, I was back into being a seven-year-old boy. So, so yes, that was a um, that experience did um, shape my life and 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 shaped my work. And it, it was the, certainly a pivotal experience that got me on the path that I'm on today. And ten years later, there was a, a second pivotal experience. Uh, the summer of 1962, uh, you had graduated from high school and were preparing for college. And again, uh, there was a, a vision, an experience that fundamentally changed your life. Yes, that's right. I, <clears throat> I was heading off to Arizona State. I was living in Phoenix at the time and had graduated from uh, West High School in Phoenix. And, and my interest was to... Um, well, I, I wanted to become a, a biologist, and specifically I, I wanted to become a molecular biologist because I was interested in doing research in the field of genetics. And, uh, and I, I was out walking one day, um, walking from our apartment where we lived, downtown Phoenix, to, to downtown and, and back, and I passed by the home of a, of a friend of ours, and she happened to be out, and she said, oh, David, come on in and have a cup of tea or a lemonade or something. And uh, she, as you know, as, as older adults will do, with with teenagers, she said, "Well, now tell me what, about your plans for the future. I know you're you're off to college in the fall, and what what are your plans?" And uh, I started to tell her, but before I said anything, I suddenly had this this vision. I was in a slightly different. I just shifted into the slightly different state of consciousness, and I saw this being in front of me. Uh, it looked like um, looked like one of these department store mannequins, but but um, entirely glowing with this white light. It was it was radiant, and and the light was coming from within it, and it. I just looked at this, and then I heard a voice behind me, and it said, in effect, uh, there's a new, a, a new approach to spirituality that's developing, it will develop, and that's what your work will be. Your work will be in helping to bring this into the world, and, 
and and as I watched this figure, it it changed. It, it turned into a grail, um, like the like an image of the Holy Grail. And then it turned back into a figure, and it turned back into a grail, and back into a figure. So I, it was pretty obvious that the, <laughs> it was making a connection. So I and this didn't last very long, you know, maybe what thirty seconds or a minute, and if even that long, it was just. It was intense, but not very lengthy. But my my friend uh, knew that something had happened, and she said, "Well, David, what, what, where did you just go? What just happened?" And so I I shared it with her, and she said, "Well, I guess that's the answer to my question about what you're going to do for in the future." But you know, I was 17 and hot to trot and becoming a scientist, and so I thought, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, if, it's, if it's going to happen, it won't happen until I'm very much older, and in the meantime, I'll have this career as a scientist, and then when I retire, I'll think about doing spiritual things. <laughs> Little did I know. And indeed, you went to college. You were excelling in your studies. Uh, in the fall of 1964, uh, you were a junior, and suddenly in a meditation, you received a message. Yes, um, that's correct. And the, me- the message basically was uh, that it was time for me to leave school and begin this spiritual work. And I, um, I, I basically just ignored it because, as you said, I, I was doing well in college. I enjoyed college. I, I had the kind of mind that, that um, lent itself to academics. So I was having a good time, and I enjoyed what I was learning. And then there was the collateral benefit that I had a student deferment, and, and this was at the time when the war in Vietnam was really heating up. It would have been 64, 1960, no, let's see, it would have been 63, actually, when this started in the fall of 63. And, um, and I, I was happy to have a draft deferment and to be doing what I was doing. And I had a couple scholarships, and so I realized that if I um, followed this suggestion from the inner um, that I would lose all that. Um, the irony of the whole situation was that while I had had a kind of on-again, off-again contact with the what I call the subtle worlds or the non-physical worlds, for all these years, since I was seven and even earlier, um, going to college and studying uh, math and science and, and, and dealing with fairly abstract concepts, particularly in math, um, trained or at least awakened or strengthened the part of my mind that dealt with the subtle world. So, in fact, uh, my contact got a lot stronger in college. And it, <laughs> And as a result, um, I found myself faced with 
this decision to to follow this increasingly strong inner prompting or not. And as it turned out, um, I, I ended up not really having a choice. There came a moment in 74 when I woke up one morning and uh, literally uh, was this someone had thrown a switch and my mind had turned off and, and um, I, I could read the textbooks and I could go to class, but I, I had no memory. I mean, I knew I'd done it, but I couldn't retain any of the information that I'd learned and I'd sit in class and I'd start taking a test and it was like gibberish. It was like I, I, I just couldn't think through what I had to in order to answer the questions. So I started failing in all my classes. <laughs> so I decided this was a pretty, a pretty good sign. <laughs> so I, um, so I, what I did is I took a leave of absence and withdrew and therefore got incomplete in my classes. I didn't want to get fa fa failing marks. But the upshot was that I did end up losing the scholarships and losing the draft deferment and, and basically found myself on this whole new path that I had not anticipated putting foot upon quite so early in my life. And that uh, withdrawal from college uh, took you ultimately to Los Angeles and um, uh, where you began uh, uh, lecturing uh, on uh, what you understood of uh, the unseen world. Um, and uh, so in the course of that experience, you, um, uh, you met Myrtle Glines. Is that the way she pronounces that name? Myrtle Glines, yes. Right. Myrtle was a Myrtle, I'd actually met the previous year. Mm -hmm. um, actually, no, uh, I had met Myrtle. Myrtle, um, I met Myrtle before I went to college. Uh -huh. so, I met, uh, so I met her when I was 16 or 17, I forget exactly. Mm -hmm. And she, um, we had met in a conference, and, and that my parents and I had attended with a friend of ours named Nivadel Hunter, who was a, uh, that in those days, one of the leading um, psychics and mediums in the U.S. And, um, and she knew Myrtle, and, and she knew us, and she sort of got us together. So Myrtle became a good friend of the family, and uh, and as it as it turned out, um, well, the thing of it is that Nivadel had a yearly conference, and in 1964, she was guided by her inner contacts to hold the conference in Phoenix, and to invite me as the keynote speaker. And uh, and so to do that, she made the the topic of the conference, youth in the new age, <laughs> and I was the youth, <laughs> <laughs> the token youth. Uh -huh. So I, when she invited me to do this, I, 
I, um, she'd, she'd been told that she needed to do this, and I, but I didn't know that. So when she invited me, I thought, I'd been, I had done some talking in the past, and, and, uh, and I enjoyed it, and I said, sure, why not? It sounds like fun. So I gave this talk, and in the audience there were a couple of, there was a couple from Los Angeles who had a center, who were also friends of Nivadell's and friends of Myrtle's. But I, that's when I met them for the first time. There was Wayne Guthrie and Bella Karish, and they invited me to come to Los Angeles and give a, a talk. And I said, well, uh, no, I don't think I will, because you know, I, I was in college and I was busy. And, but when all this happened the, the following year, the following spring, I, I got in contact with, with Myrtle and with Wayne and Bella, and told them what was going on, and and Wayne and Bella invited uh, me out to say, well, why don't you come out? We've got the center. You can give some talks, and we'll just see what happens. Um, we'll be uh, like a, a, a testing ground for you. And Myrtle said, well, I'll come too. And they said, well, we'll set up some talks for you. She was a uh, she gave talks and workshops in human relations. So the two of us ended up going, being invited at the same time and going to L.A. and and really forming a partnership that lasted for quite a number of years after that. And it was, I was having breakfast with her one morning to talk about how we might, um, we'd been asked to, to combine our approaches and do a joint workshop. So we were talking about this. The thing of it is, Michael, that um, I got to L.A. and started giving talks uh, at this at, at Wayne and Bella Center, and, it, and I realized that I didn't have a lot to draw on. I mean, I had these experiences that I was having, but a lot of them were very mystical in nature. Um, they didn't lend themselves really to giving a, you know, a talk with lots of information. And I thought, well, here I am, and I'm, I, I've been told I need to do this, but I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I need some help. And I just asked for help. And the, the nice thing about working with Myrtle was that she had very specific um, techniques and uh, that she could offer, and she was she had way more experience. She was probably thirty some years older than I was, and she had uh, and she was very intuitive, had a lot of wisdom, uh, a lot of um, experience working with people. What she didn't have was the contact with the inner world that I had, and what I didn't have was her experience. Because I was, uh, well, then by then I was 20. A callow youth, as they say. Right. So, so, um, so working together was really a great idea because we could pool our strengths. Um, but still I felt I, I needed help. So one morning then we were having breakfast and this being appeared. 
and looking very much like a college professor with leather jacket and I mean a tweed tweed jacket with leather patches on his elbow and so on. Very very um, friendly and familiar appearance, and radiating a great deal of love and a great deal of of energy. And he gave me his name, which was purely vibrational in nature. And uh, and I thought, well, I I have no idea how to what that would mean in English. So I'll just I'll call you John. And he said, well, you can call me John because <laughs> I that's okay. You can call me John. I, I that's fine. And he said, um, we can form a partnership if you'd like, and we have a work that we can do together. So I thought about it for all of a little while and not very long and said, sure, let's do this. And he became my, my mentor. And that, that's the story that's told in the Apprentice Spirit book. And that partnership lasted 27 years. Yeah, it right. did and he said that there were two tasks that inspire our work together. One is to explore the spirituality of being a person, yep. and the second is to encourage people toward a new vision of the world as well as of themselves. Yes, that's right. And I think at the time I, I saw those as two different things. Um, he was... He basically said that that the humanity was undergoing, the world was undergoing uh, fairly radical changes, would be undergoing even more in the future. And it was, uh, from his point of view, um, when he talked about the present, he more or less covered a, a time span of about 100 years. <laughs> um, and, he, and part of that change was to um, bring about a new conception of the relationship between the incarnate self, particularly the personality, and the soul, the transpersonal levels. And Because at the time, certainly the groups that I was familiar with and the people whom I knew in, in the alternative spiritual movement or what now would, would probably be called the New Age Movement, um, the, the personality had a pretty bum rap. It was viewed as a thing you had to get rid of in order to advance spiritually. And John's perspective was that um, that, that attitude actually created more problems than it solved and made it more difficult for, for them on their side to work with us effectively in most cases. So, so he was very keen on, on looking at a different way of, um, <clears throat> a different perspective on the relationship between the incarnate self and the soul or the transpersonal levels. And of course, this, this worked out very well in, for Myrtle and me, because um, in effect, that's 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 the we each had two pieces of that puzzle. Myrtle was a, really was a 
specialist in helping people understand and work with their personality. And and my talent ran in the other direction uh, towards the subtle world. So working together was um, a, was a, a training in itself. So so for the first five years, that was the focus of the work that John and I did, and and there was very little of it was around the the new age or the planetary changes aspect. It was pretty focused on the spirituality of the individual. And and that lasted until I went to Finhorn, and Finhorn was a New Age center, had been created in part as a demonstration center for a new way of being. And so that, that kind of brought me full circle around to the, this whole New Age idea and, and, and changed some of the dynamic of the work that John and I were doing. So let's talk a little about uh, your arrival at Findhorn. Uh, we're, we're skipping, of course, uh, many very rich uh, chapters in your life at this point. But um, uh, talk a little bit about the key figures that you met at Findhorn. Eileen Caddy, Peter Caddy, um, uh, Dorothy McLean, and uh, and Rock, is that how you say R. Ogilvy? Crombie. Crombie? Yeah, Rock. Right, right. so... From his initials. Right, so essentially four key figures, right? Yes, that's correct. And tell us a little about what it was like when you arrived and, and who you discovered these four people to be. Okay. I should say, by way of preface, that I had heard about Finhorn in 1967 from a man who made his temporary home there, a man named Anthony Brook, who traveled around the world giving slideshows and basically acting as a kind of networker between various spiritual centers and groups. And he had come to San Francisco near where I was living in 67 and had given a talk and then for some, for some reason had been told to look me up. I, I don't remember anymore how he got my name, but he did call me and we got together and he told me about Findhorn. So I knew about the place. I never really expected to go there but in, in 1970, uh, I did have the opportunity uh, to go there. I was in, in London and called up to Peter Caddy and said, uh, can I come up for a visit? And he said, oh, yes, absolutely, come right away. So I got the train and went up. And, uh, and the thing was that... that I'd been told by John the, earlier in the year that my work in the United States was coming to an end for a time, that I was going to be working in Europe, but he didn't say where. He just said, here's how you will recognize um, where you will be working when you see it. And he, he basically presented me with what I think of as a as a vibrational picture, a sense of the uh, what what the energy field would be like, how to what it would feel like, how to recognize it. 
And so when I got up to Finhorn, I was met at the train station by, by Peter Caddy, one of the three founders. <laughs> and he was a big man uh, and um, big, uh, muscular, and, and uh, very fit. And <laughs> so when I got off the train, when Myrtle and I got off the train, we, were, we went up together. He just embraced me. I remember being crushed against this sweater, this wool sweater that he was wearing. So he piled into his car, and we went off to um, Finhorn, and I, and, and I was immediately struck with the fact that I was in the presence of, of, a, of a very lively, vital, uh, down-to-earth fellow. He was an ex-RAF captain, and... I just I just took to Peter immediately. He's kind of like um, one of these adventurers that you'd read about in a boy's novel. And in fact, later when I came to to know his life story, um, his life story reads like an adventure in a boy's novel. As a friend of mine said, it's a ripping great yarn, and it really is. It's a yarn that he that he recounts in this. Uh, memoir that you uh, suggested I read, In Perfect Timing, Memoirs of a Man for the New Millennium, yeah. um, which is, as you say, an extraordinary yarn. Yeah, uh, exactly right. On the back page, you're quoted as calling him a doer for God. <laughs> well, that, that is an excellent description. He, uh, I think in most of the years I knew Peter, he did, never sat very much. He was constantly active in doing things, and just very ebullient, very positive, uh, kind of a, a sunshiny person. And we, we got to Finhorn, and, and I, I really wasn't expecting what I found. I'd, I had this kind of image in my mind of sort of this, I don't know, wishy-washy psychic place. I'm not just sure how I'd come to that. But, um, but the energy bowled me over, um, and it was exactly the energy that John told me to look for. So I knew that totally outside of my expectation, I had arrived at where John said I needed to go. So I, um, when we got there, in those days, Finhorn occupied one half of a trailer park on a, on a beach, and, and the contrast between the two halves was part of the, uh, the, what was so remarkable about the place, because one half, the trailers were rented to local RAF personnel, because there was a big RAF base right next door. And essentially, it was just this barren trailer park. No attempt had been made to really fix it up or beautify it in any way. And then the other half was the community, and it was uh, radiant. It was filled with gardens and flowers and vegetables and bungalows and trailers, and, and it was like stepping, it was like crossing a line into, into fairyland. You know, the thing that it most made me think of was Brigadoon. I thought, oh my gosh, this is Brigadoon. It, was like, it had that kind of magical quality to it. Uh, sitting here, this this place, sitting on the dunes, 
<laughs> this beach. Um, and I met Eileen, who was a, a kind of a lovely, matronly English woman, very English and very quiet. And she was the one that received the guidance that Peter followed in, in running Findhorn. She was his wife. And I met Dorothy, who was Peter's secretary in those days, and she was, uh, she was very um, quiet, too. Um, actually, when you were with Peter, it wasn't that Peter talked so much, but his energy would fill the room. And, and Dorothy was, I don't know, I took to her immediately. She was <clears throat> this very interesting, very down-to-earth, but, but you could tell very spiritually attuned woman who I thought was kind of wasted being a secretary for Peter. But, um, but they, the three of them had been working together for many, many years. And, uh, so, I, so I'd been at Finhorn for a couple days, two or three days, and had been given the tours and seen the fabulous gardens and talked with Peter and heard the history and all of this. And I, and I kept feeling, you know, this is the place that John was referring to, but what am I supposed to do here? And, and, and Peter called me in one day to have tea with him and with Eileen. And he, in the course of the tea, he said, David, you should know that we've been expecting you for three years. That in 1967, I, um, Dorothy received a couple of booklets you had written in, in, back in America. And I'd written a couple booklets for my classes and had mimeographed them off and distributed them. And unbeknownst to me, one of the class members had mailed them to Finhorn. And Peter said, when Eileen read your booklet, she had a vision. And in the vision, she was told that you would be coming and that you would be an integral part of the community and you should be one of its directors. And Peter said, we had no idea who you were or where you were. We just knew that one day you would show up. And here you are. And so how would you like to be my co-director? And... I was uh, admittedly a little flabbergasted at this, but it wasn't the first time I'd run into this situation where forces on the inner had been preparing the way, so to speak. So I said, yes, I, I'll be glad to do that. And that started my three-year stay at Findhorn. You know, part of what's fascinating and why I'm so grateful for your suggestions for reading before we talked, is that as I read these um, uh, five memoirs, uh, your memoir, Apprentice uh, to Spirit, and then Eileen Caddy's memoir, Flight into Freedom and Beyond, and then I read uh, Dorothy McLean's uh, memoir of an ordinary mystic, and then uh, Peter Caddy's In Perfect Timing, and finally, are Ogilvy uh, Crombie's Meeting Fairies. Um, and uh, <laughs> for someone who has, um, shall we say, modest contact with uh, the unseen world, in other words, I, I do, and I'm grateful for, uh, a real sense 
uh, actually there's nothing that I'm more grateful for than a sense of, of guidance that comes from somewhere that I cannot locate and, and do not understand, but which I, I regard as sacred. But I don't see things. I don't hear things. Uh, I'm, I'm not a sensitive or a channel or any of those things. At best, I'm a bit of an intuitive. Um, and so um, what's wonderful about this is that um, to the, uh, the, the, the order in which I read them gradually prepared me for the last one which I read, uh, R. Ogilvie Crombie's Meeting Fairies. And here he is, uh, this extraordinary uh, Scott, uh, wandering about um, uh, having uh, tea with a fawn and, and meeting the god Pan and, and really um, and seeing uh, this entire unseen world, which of course you also see, um, but somehow uh, your descriptions of the unseen world, while startling, are somehow less, what word would I say, um, less flamboyantly startling than reading um, R. Ogilvy Crombie, uh, just because um, this little book is, is so continuously filled with um, extraordinary experiences of, of uh, the world as he saw it. And the other thing I'd want to say about reading these uh, biographies is that um, everybody is so human. Uh, these are not sort of, uh, you know, cut out uh, figures of perfect moral rectitude and, and you know, uh, you know, sort of perfect lives. Um, you know, the story of how Peter Caddy and Eileen Caddy met when, uh, you know, they were both, uh, when her husband at the time was in the uh, Royal Air Force and so was Peter Caddy, and she was married and had four children, right? And didn't expect, exactly right. didn't expect at all to, to have somebody decide that uh, she, she was his other half and to spirit her away from her marriage and, uh, and into a life that ended up in uh, complete poverty and they're living in a trailer on a beach and he's on welfare and all they have uh, between them uh, in addition to uh, 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 two children is uh, a profound faith in um, the guidance that they were receiving. Uh, and so here they are in, in perfect poverty, in one sense, their lives having completely fallen apart, and yet they have this unbelievably powerful sense of guidance. Yes, well, you've hit the nail on the head. That's, that's exactly right, Michael. The, um, you know, Finhorn, as I look back, Finhorn was either incredibly lucky or incredibly protected and guided, and I'm, I'm sure it's actually a combination of both in the folks that were involved in helping set it up, and, and not just the five who you mentioned, but you know, uh, just a majority of the people who came there were really outstanding in their own ways and offered a great deal to that place. 
but um, but yeah, uh, everyone was very human. Um, and and Dorothy, Dorothy, you know, she she was dedicated to the work that she was doing with Peter and Eileen, but she didn't actually like them. They they weren't friends in the, any customary sense of the term. And in fact, she got on Peter's nerves, and he got on hers. And they, but they were. But they were colleagues, and they were companions in this spiritual work, and they they respected each other for that. But but they didn't hang out together, and they weren't really, you know, there was they weren't friends in that sense. And uh, Rock lived in Edinburgh and would come up to Finhorn occasionally, uh, and he was remarkable. He he um, when you read. Especially when you read his new book, the Occult Diaries, uh, if you think that what you read in Meeting Fairies is quite amazing, the, huh, these are his private diaries that he base, have basically been kept sealed away since his death. And his one and only student um, has finally seen fit to um, put to release them, and they are. They really are remarkable, but the thing is that Ogilvy, who was himself trained as a as a physicist and a um, um, was 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 working with um, telegraphy back in the First World War and so on, uh, he he was the most unassuming and loving person that that you could ever meet. You would have no idea. In being with him, you would you would feel his sweetness, but you'd have no idea that all these things were going on around him. He just uh, really nobody and nobody put on airs or or made claims. Um, and I think some of it was, well, I don't know. You know, looking back, Michael, I think some of it was due to um, just a, a certain rectitude that the British people have. But I think most of it was just that these were people who were not, they had real, especially Peter and Eileen and Dorothy and, and maybe Rock in his own way, had really struggled through their early years and had, had dealt with uh, the problems of, of their egos. You know, they just were not interested in, in personal aggrandizement or, or advance, but were totally dedicated to the spiritual work. So, so they, they were a remarkable group of people. I, I always think of Rock, since I never knew any of my grandfathers, <clears throat> both had died before I was born, um, I always thought of Rock as a kind of uh, ideal grandfather type, although he never, ever took that kind of role with me. Uh, and and he, if anything, what he reminded me of was Gandalf, or or in, in nowadays of Dumbledore from the Harry Potter series. I mean, he 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 was in his way a genuine wizard, and uh, and he carried that that quality around with him, but but in a very gentle fashion. So, yeah, it was a remarkable group of people. There's no no question about it. And Peter, Peter was the only one of the four of us who had used to brag that he was dumb as a stump 
<coughs> when it came to seeing the inner world or hearing, he'd said, I see nothing, I hear nothing. <laughs> uh, he, he felt he had a really sharp intuition, and he did, but he relied on others for contact with the subtle world. And what he would do uh, without telling any of us is he would ask me a question, ask me to tune in and get some information. Then he would ask Dorothy the same thing. He'd ask Eileen, and he'd ask Rock. But he wouldn't tell any of us that he was doing that, you see. So then he'd get all four of us answering his question, and he would compare the answers. <laughs> so in his own way, he was constantly checking up on us. And the nice thing is that, that in those occasions, we always came up with the same answer, although we came up with it in in different ways, and and came at it, came at the answer in different ways. So, and this is something you this is something you talk about in in another place uh, in your memoir, which is uh, that because of your background in science and your sort of personality, that one of the things that you believe in in uh, relating to the subtle worlds is peer review. And and so, in a sense, that's what Peter was doing. But but in other circumstances, I mean, one of the things, as I told you when I met you, David, I I uh, we'd been together for about an hour, and I said to you, you know, the most surprising thing for me about you is how much humility you have. And you looked at me, and I'll never forget this. You said, "Well, I have a lot to be humilitous about," and. <laughs> And, you know, it just uh, that I find at least that there's something about that quality of humility in people who have some gift or other that is just for me, it opens the door so wide uh, to explore what their gift is because there's no ego that I can discern bouncing around about it. It's, uh, it's, it's offered in a spirit of, um, of take this and, and see what value it may have for you. Well, that, well thank you for that, Michael. I, um, well, that, that's right. Um, I, you know, I, I I feel I was given a, a job to do and tools with which to do it, but but the job and the tools, in a way, have nothing to do with me. And just, I mean, I could just as easily be a plumber. Well, actually, probably not, because I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to those kind of things. But um, I mean, that, in a way, that's part of what I'd like to accomplish something I, I try to, to do in talking and writing about the subtle worlds is to help help folks see those realms as something ordinary. They're extraordinary in a way, but, but in another way, they're ordinary. And, and that, um, that, that there's a relationship that we can have 
that is in effect a working relationship. It's not it's not a relationship that's given to um, grandiose images, and it's just you know it's like it's like what any of us are trying to do. You you you're getting down and dirty in a particular way and trying to push against resistance to get certain ideas or or certain um, uh, accomplishments out in the world and and you know it's, it's, it's just a job in a sense and I um, you know I I really got inoculated early on when I started traveling on the lecture circuit um, I um, um, Wayne and Bella who were the ones that gave me my start in Los Angeles, they had, they set such a standard. They were um, very integrous people, and there absolutely was no sense of ego about either of them, although they were pretty extraordinary in what they could do. But they go out on the lecture circuit, and unfortunately, um, I couldn't say that about all of the speakers and people that I met. There was a lot of... Uh, 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 there was a lot of egos out there, <laughs> and 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 I remember I had an experience early on while I was with Wayne and Bella, where um, I was talking with a group, and they were quite determinedly trying to put me on a pedestal, and I was quite determinedly trying to keep off of it. Because I recognize that the more that they put me on this pedestal, the more the energy backed up between me and them. And uh, it was like um, like being part of a of a hose where water's flowing out, and then it it hits this resistance and it backs up. and And it was painful in a way, and was certainly frustrating. And I. I realized early on that um, that if I was to, going to be able to do the things I wanted to do, then I certainly couldn't do it from any kind of a of a pedestal. Um, and 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 you know, you look out in the world. I mean, Michael, look at the things that you're accomplishing and you're doing. Um, from my point of view, that's pretty fantastic. And, and, uh, well, I have the same complete, I have the same total resistance to being put on a pedestal. I mean, one of the things about being put on a pedestal is that it's enormously dangerous because then people will, having put you there, they will knock you off it. And it's just uh, infinitely simpler uh, to emphasize uh, one's vulnerability and uh, one's absolute sort of co-equal uh, role with other partners, and uh, and and it just as you say the whole system works better. Um, but isn't wasn't that one of the problems that that ultimately uh, made you realize? And I may have this wrong, but I had a sense that one of the reasons you uh, felt called upon when the time came to leave Findhorn was that you didn't want to be on a pedestal there. Um. Yes, that's that's true. It's it wasn't. It, yes, that's true. It, it was a little different. 
Um, the thing about Finhorn was that, as I said, people were pretty ordinary. And at the time I lived there, it was mostly young people. You know, we were all in our early 20s. There were very few people in their 30s or above. And one thing about young people is they, they tend, you know, if, if another young person started to get on a pedestal, they tend to knock him off. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, um, but what was happening was that, was that when, uh, when I, I, there came a point when Eileen needed to stop getting guidance for the community for her own good and for the good of the community. And after that, um, Peter tended to, um, well, he he kind of was in a, he he agreed that had to happen, but he was sort of in a habit of getting guidance from people. And when Eileen stopped, then then there was this this kind of creep (laughs) towards, putting me more and more into the position of the one who gets guidance on everything in the community. So I, I discovered that um, that I was being asked to comment on or give a seal of approval to just about everything that was happening. Peter would bring that to me and say, what do you think of this, and so on. And, and I just felt this was not a good situation that I was, in fact, in a kind of strange way, being put on a pedestal by Peter and to some extent by Eileen, not in an, any kind of egotistical way, but in an, in an administrative way. And, and I honestly didn't have enough experience under my belt to quite know how to, to cope with that and to deflect it. And all I... I just found myself increasingly resistant to it, and I felt that um, that my my being in the community was becoming I was becoming more and more of a um, oh a block. There's a word for it, um, but I can't think what it is just at the moment. But I was becoming the uh, a point of oh you know. <laughs> you mean a, bo- a bottle? Everything narrows down to a... A bottleneck? Yeah, there you go. Thank yeah. you, Michael. <laughs> I was becoming a bottleneck. And, um, and I just felt, for my sake and for the community's sake, that I, I had to leave. And you know what's really fascinating on this point? It, when you, one reads these, these five memoirs together, are the, the slightly different but interestingly different accounts of that moment. So, for example, the moment of my leaving, or the moment? No, well, not. I was thinking more of the moment uh, when uh, when Eileen had to stop getting guidance for the community, Uh, because this was fundamental, as you write. This was no minor matter. It was a change in the most fundamental aspect of Findhorn and how it had been governed since it started in 1962. I could imagine both Peter and Eileen objecting, and so on. However, I knew that if what I was seeing was accurate, there was no other choice. I told Eileen and Peter my thoughts and observations the next day. To my surprise and delight, both were very accepting of this change. It turned out Eileen herself had been getting, uh, had been thinking along similar lines, and so on. So, um, so you, you uh, uh, had a 
very important contribution to this. Uh, Eileen uh, and Peter each have an account in which it was simply that Eileen came to this and there's no mention of the conversations with you. And of course, you know, memoirs and biographies are like that, but it's fascinating to read them together because at, at critical moments there are, are different emphases or different uh, accounts of what took place. Well, that's, that's, that's right. I, I um, you know, as I look back on it and remember it, it was, it was something that was evidently had to happen because the community was beginning to suffer um, in various ways by by having Eileen at the kind of at the pinnacle getting guidance um, and it for me it was a sensitive issue because I'd always felt myself there to help support Peter and Eileen and Dorothy in externalizing the vision of Finhorn. I never felt Finhorn was my place. I felt I was there to help help the spirit that was evolving there. And I was very sensitive. I didn't want Eileen or Peter to feel that I was, especially Eileen, that I was trying to oust her, you know, that in some way I, I wanted to conduct a coup d'etat and put myself in her place. So there was a a kind of uh, um, tentativeness about it for me. But, um, but it, it, I definitely sat down and talked with Eileen and, about it, and uh, as I said, it was very relieved to realize that... That she was thinking she was along similar lines, thing. yeah. And, and that, in fact, she and Peter had been talking about it. So, so I think all that I did was to... Um, just add some confirmation, and she felt my support in the action, mm-hmm. and uh, therefore felt um, felt some relief and felt more encouraged to move ahead um, than she might have otherwise. But um, but yeah, it was a it definitely was a pivotal mm-hmm. moment. In 1973, you uh, sensed that it was time to move back toward the United States, and that's what I hope to focus the rest of our time on, because really, uh, we've sort of covered your emergence as a spiritual teacher in Phoenix and then Los Angeles, uh, your uh, arrival through uh, many chapters that we didn't have time to cover at Findhorn, your time at Findhorn. But then we come to what is in many respects uh, the most interesting part of your entire journey for me, which is the maturing of your spiritual vision. Um, And um, I just want to make a couple of comments about it um, and and hear your response. The first one is that um, you, you... you read widely, very widely, um, and are as attached to books as I am. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to meet someone who is also as immersed in the, the world of, of books. Um, but you knew uh, the Bailey work, Alice Bailey's teachings. And when one reads the Bailey work, um, one is struck uh, by, first of all, the, the very hierarchical 
a vision of the inner world that, that came to Alice Bailey. Uh, secondly, uh, one is also struck um, by the suppression of ego, uh, of the personality in the service of the work. Um, and thirdly, one is struck uh, uh, in a very positive way uh, by her concept of world servers and the idea that all over the world, in every part of the world, there were emerging, this was uh, World War uh, II, uh, a new generation of, of world servers who uh, were going to seek to bring peace to humanity. Your vision um, is profoundly consonant with our time. It's an ecological vision. It is a, a non-hierarchic uh, vision, although you point out the in some respects, the inevitably uh, that you have a beautiful metaphor of a house to which rooms are added, and, and some rooms are clearly there before others. But it is, uh, it's a very uh, collaborative, uh, ecological uh, vision of the inner, uh, of the subtle worlds. Uh, and it's a vision of the subtle worlds in which what one really seeks to do is to find partners who want to collaborate with us in service to life, who, who see the, uh, the human potential, uh, even in the midst of the extraordinarily destructive way in which humanity is, is operating. And perhaps nowhere is this clearer than in your book, uh, Facing the Future, uh, where uh, all along you have rejected the apocalyptic vision of, of the destruction of humanity. Um, but you, in a sense, uh, have more hope for humanity than most people I've read who, uh, who share our values and share our... Um, our deep distress at what uh, people are doing to the world of nature. So I wanted to, well, you can comment on any of those points, but I particularly wanted to ask you about what it is that gives you this sense of hope uh, for humanity in the future. <laughs> well, Michael, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, and we'll 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 just rule out insanity as a given. Of <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I uh, my sense of hope really is rooted in my experience of the subtle world. That's where it comes from. Uh, um, if all I had to judge by or go on was what I saw happening in the physical world and the reactions of physical leaders, I'd be pretty despondent and would feel there's not much hope at all. Um, but, uh, but in fact, what I see is, a, is that the problems we're facing are not, we're not facing them all by ourselves. That there's um, a marshalling of resources, I guess I'd say, on the in the subtle worlds 
to help out. It's not as if, actually, it's not as if this time period has not been foreseen or prepared for. I feel that it has, and that part of what we're dealing with that seems so traumatic is, is a genuine transformational process in which some outworn ways of being on the earth have, have to be sloughed off the way a snake sloughs off a skin. But how to do that, that's not an easy thing, um, particularly because when we talk about outworn ideas, uh, they're attached to living people. And, uh, and, uh, and the thing I find unfortunate about the apocalyptic vision, uh, for the most part, is that it, it gets very focused on sloughing off people. And in that process, um, I think we, we lose touch with where the, the resources lie that, um, uh, let's see, how, to, how just to put this into words, um, uh, if I look at a, a single person who's, say, um, well, uh, one of my relatives, I have relatives who are absolutely uh, convinced that global warming is a hoax and they, they listen to Rush Limbaugh every day and they, they are the stereotype of the diehard conservative Republican who feels that if we just get rid of the immigrants and get rid of you know the, the liberals and get rid of uh, all the regulations and get rid of the government that um, we would be back in Eden. And um, uh, so I can look at a person like that, and and I see how uh, how deeply interwoven their sense of security and being in the world is with those ideas. Uh, by the same token, they are my relatives, and and I observe them often close up, and they're very kind people. They're very loving people. They do good things in the world. They're not at all. Um, the kind of folks who would go out and get guns and shoot people. They're, they're, they're good folk is what they are, but they, they absolutely lack any sense of a planetary vision or a sense of the environment as anything other than um, a resource for human wealth. Um, so I, I think uh, what, what will enable them to change and... And, uh, and I, I observe them slowly changing. And what's, slowly, what's been slowly changing them, interestingly enough, is the whole economic crisis that we've been going through because they, they've had to, um, well, in a way, in a way they, they, they can't pinpoint a villain for it. I mean, they'd like to pinpoint Obama, but they're smart enough to know that he's not entirely the cause, you know, and, and so they're, they're, they're starting to talk with me about the need for community and the need for people working together, and, and, and they're just the kind of people who would do that, who would work together, who, who would reach across any aisle to, a, to another human being, even if they didn't like their ideas. Um, so I think, okay... Um, 
there's probably millions of people like that. And when we think of, of apocalypse and the need for certain old ideas to be swept away, what, do we really want to think of that in terms of all these people being killed and only the people with right thought remaining? I mean, that's, um, that's a pretty awful idea, and, it's, and it has all kinds of moral implications. But what, ter- but what is it that, you know, like, like water um, working against a, a rock, what erodes this old stuck stuff and allows change to happen? And I think that's... So I look upon the, the crises that are happening, and that probably will undoubtedly continue to happen, as, as those kind of eroding forces and none of it is pleasant, none of it is easy, but, um, but it's causing old patterns to break up. I had a letter from a friend in Norway who was writing about the effects of the massacre they had on the island where the gunmen shot all these 60-some teenagers and, and young adults, and he said the effect has been to release such a wave of love and compassion and, and, uh, and a sense of, of change amongst the, the people there. And uh, it's just the opposite of what the killer intended, who was trying to incite a kind of civil war. Um, I, I heard from another fellow who was in Joplin who's, where the tornado hit, and he said, for the first time, and I don't remember when, we have an actual spirit of community here because it's only by community that that we're going to get through the devastation. And he said, up till now, you know, people were kind of in their own thing, doing their own thing, but the but the, the tornado has brought us together and I um so I I think okay, there's there's these strong eroding forces that are at work. I, I would not call them apocalyptic, but I would call them um, impactful, certainly. Remember, John said once, years and years ago, and I asked him about this because there were so many apocalyptic prophecies in California during the, the late 60s and early 70s. And he said, well, that there won't be a big apocalypse, but there will be what you might call mini apocalypse apocalypti here and there, which will keep increasingly keep the system in a in a unstable state where it doesn't quite collapse, but it never quite gets back to being able to do business as normal. And it's in that that interim state that change is possible. Because from from John's point of view, um, if things collapse uh, it creates a condition of fear and anxiety that can lock in older patterns, and you don't get the transformation you want. And if things stay the same, uh, you don't get the transformation you want. So what you want is a kind of middle ground that's, that keeps the water boiling but never quite boils it over the top but never lets it run out either. And that's what I see happening. That actually, oddly enough, gives me a lot of hope. I'm, I'm aware, as I said, of immense, truly immense resources of, of beings 
who are trying to move closer to the world, trying to overcome a, a number of, of barriers of consciousness and attitude and, and subtle energy that have grown up and has prevented the kind of partnership that is needed. And, and wherever there's an opening, um, then they move through to, to take advantage of it. And, and something that I, I'm only just starting, really, to work with, because I have to say that if somebody had told me, even just a few years ago, that I would be focusing so much on this work with the subtle world, I, I would have laughed, uh, because I've, I've never really... I've always kept my involvement with the subtle world somewhat close to my chest, to tell you the truth until very fairly recently. You might not know it from reading my books now, but, but before I wrote any of those books, I, I kept that side of my life and work somewhat um, close to my chest, as I say. But what I'm interested in now is in exploring is, is something about this partnership where um, the emphasis isn't on being able to see or hear. It's not on psychic phenomena but it's on what I've been calling collaborative mind. Because I think initially that's how it's going to work out with folks. Because, um, uh, you know, there's, there's more people who are not aware of the subtle world than there are people who are. So how to develop a partnership amongst a population that's generally unaware? Well, you, you begin helping them discern the awareness that's already there, and it is there in most people. They just don't recognize it. And you shift the attention away from the kind of phenomena that uh, has accompanied this kind of work in the past and has become the way in which people think about it, uh, that I have to see something or I have to hear something. I have to have, an, a, I have, to have a, a phenomenal experience of some nature, but, but I, even in the, in the New Testament, there's this wonderful passage about God as the still, small voice and, and, and the, the encounter with spirit that happens in, in very non-dramatic ways, but very powerful ways. And, and I have to say, Michael, part of my challenge here has been that I'm somebody who does see and who is aware of the inner world's and so when I say to somebody, you don't have to have my talents to do this work, sometimes I get the response, well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So um, it's, it's a little bit like pushing against some, some, ex, uh, some expectations. But, um, but my, my feeling is that uh, the more that it's like a gathering wave or, or one of... Um, the morphogenetic fields, once, once enough people begin to open up and have a sense of, of this inner contact, um, it will spread. But, but the important thing is that um, the inner contact is anchored in a strong and powerful sense of the individual's own sovereignty in the context of his or her incarnation. Because um, I think one reason that the veils 
fell, you know, there have been these veils, is that uh, to protect humanity, protect people from just being um, pulled out of their groundedness by the strength of some of the subtle energies that one can encounter. Oh, I'm just actually I've been kind of rambling here, and I'm not sure I've answered your question. Well, I think you have. I, one of the the metaphors that that I work with, and thinking about the human future, uh, because of all the 26 years of work we've done at Commonweal with people with cancer, and um, and the very real fact that when people develop a life threatening illness. Uh, very often, many uh, materialistic preoccupations and psychological neuroses fall away, and they uh, have a very urgent sense of a need to be in contact with what is truly important. And uh, you know, this is, as you well know, the the core of uh, the Jungian uh, 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 archetype of the wounded healer, uh, and of Dame Edith Sitwell's lovely comment about William Blake that he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. And so that sense that that the wound is not only a wound but an opening and that it can be an opening to the light, uh, I find replayed in the history of humanity uh, where one sees a very real historical progress over the last 500 years from slavery to freedom, from women as property to women's rights, from, uh, you know, workers as uh, serfs to trade unions. Uh, and each of these many, many, I could name many others, the, you know, civil rights movement, the human rights movement, the animal rights movement, each of them is an expansion of the field of respectful consciousness. And uh, and so there is this movement uh uh, you know, the, the, uh, some French sociologist called it the, the civilizing uh, process. Uh, there's this movement of expansion of consciousness, which in historic terms is very real, and which is, often takes place dramatically uh, during wars, World War I, World War II, the Civil War of Vietnam, uh, where tremendous wounding takes place, and with it, as you're saying, in the cases you just described, comes an opening, that the wound uh, also creates the space for an opening. So without the kind of access that you have to the inner world, uh, this is something that I can attest to, both in my experience of you know uh, thousands of people living with cancer and in my reading of human history, that there is this movement, which of course is in fierce competition with the power of our destructive uh, capacities. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me, um, one, one of the reasons that I have hope, Michael, is because of my inner perception of the nature of humanity, what I call the, the soul of humanity, our, our spiritual collective identity, which is something that um, is is still in the process of emerging and, and developing, but it's there. And it is, it is one of the most beautiful and remarkable and powerful spirits or beings that I have ever encountered or that I encounter. I am, I am truly speechless when I am able to see it and attune to it. Um, 
and it is <laughs> I, when when I have that experience, I have I just have no doubt that um, the things that are our travails at the moment and the the, the stupid things we're doing and the and the, the challenges we're creating um, will be dealt with dealt with in good ways. Um, I'm not I don't know how. Always, I have, you know, I have, I have my own speculations the way that everyone does, but I have no doubt about the the strength of this collective being. And so, part of my practice is to meditate on that and to um, to do what I can to um, open channels, I guess, or 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 create grooves energetically. For its presence to move more easily into the world, um, and I, you know, I I remember years ago I was in Crestone, Colorado. I was at the time when when the Lindisfarne Association was headquartered there, and we were having a conference, and it was running simultaneously with an event in the Aspen Institute, which had a center there in the Crestone Valley, too, and they had brought in all of these religious leaders, Christian religious leaders from around the country, ministers and bishops and of different denominations and so on, fairly high-level gathering. And they brought them together with some uh, people from the State Department and from government to talk about the future of humanity and the future of the United States. And at one point, we had a joint lunch because they'd heard about the, this conference that we were having, our annual Lindisfarne Fellows Gathering, and they knew some of the fellows. And <clears throat> so we were all invited down to lunch. So I'm, I'm sitting at a table that's filled with some of these uh, top leaders in various churches and they're all talking about um, the inevitability of nuclear war. And uh, this was, I think, back in the late 70s or early 80s. It's certainly before the, it was way before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, uh, and, and one of them turned to me and said, well, well David, what, what do you feel? Do you, when do you feel the war is going to come or is it going to come? And I said, well, I, I don't feel it's ever going to come. And and they stopped and looked at me, and they said, well, how can you say that? There was this one, I mean, those immediately around me, around us, this discussion, and this fellow was talking to me, said, well, how can you feel that? Um, well, on what basis do you have any faith that, that humanity will um, survive? And I said, well, because I feel God wills, us, wills it so. I mean, I didn't know any other language. <laughs> use with this group and it, it was it was like um, it was like they couldn't quite grasp what I'd said um, it was like that meant no sense at all and I realized that none of these ministers had any faith in the very God that they were helping people to try to worship it was was an astounding moment actually for me because um, I think I've just kind of 
naively assume that, well, if you're a minister, you must believe in what you're a minister of. And I realized that they didn't, that uh, this particular group, at any rate, uh, did not have that faith. And in some way, I felt they were lacking an experience of, of what spirit is and of how it moves in the world and, the, and of a, a deep underlying power of life and growth that's at work in, in the world. So, so that's, that's where my hope comes from. I, um, and it's a, I, think it, I think it's a measured hope. Um, because I'm, I'm sure that it's. I would never discount the possibility that we can stumble badly, and for all the great potential that we have, not fully realize it. But I, I feel the tide of history is actually moving in our favor, not against us, and so I'm, I am confident that way. David, there's much more I'd like to ask you, but I promised you 90 minutes and we've already run over. So I hope we'll talk again. Uh, and I just want to thank you with all my heart for being with us at the New School. Well, Michael, this has been wonderful. And I, I just so enjoy chatting with you. And I treasured the time that you were here. And I look forward to future encounters. I do too, David. Uh, Give Julie my best, and uh, I will find you down the trail. Okie doke. All right. Thank you so much.